Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. Very excited to have Dr. Frank Scali on the show today. And those of you that are looking at the anatomy research and, and very interested in the cranial cervical junction anatomy and physiology and uh, the work Dr. Harshfield and Rosa do looking at the CSF fluid dynamics, we're going to be very excited about this particular the interview because this is the guy who discovered the myodural bridge. And we're going to kind of talk through your background in chiropractic, uh, your work as an anatomist, because we were just talking off air there that you don't do any clinical work at this point. So all anatomy and research work, do a lot of illustrative work and things like that. Uh, so you have a, a unique career trajectory, you know, coming from a chiropractic background. Uh, so interested to hear how that all developed. But then most recently, uh, Dr. Scally's got a, a paper that's been published open access and I think is, is by now might be indexed in PubMed. Uh, the posterior atlanto occipital membrane, the anchor for the myo dural bridge and meningeal vertebral structures. Uh, so some really, really important concepts here for us as clinicians working with this cranial cervical junction. And so we're going to talk through the findings of Dr. Scali's most recent publication and uh, spitball a little bit about the clinical implications, because it, at the end of the day, day to day for, for the work we're doing as practicing chiropractors, uh, this information needs to be synthesized with our operational procedures, you know, and our chiropractic techniques so that we're up to date with the latest application of those techniques and getting folks the results that they want. So uh, I don't usually do this, but I did want to read a portion of Dr. Scali's uh, bio biography. Uh, he's a faculty instructor, assistant professor of medical anatomy and the anatomy lab director at the California University School of Medicine. And so what's really interesting about his particular focus is this interest in the myovertebral uh, structures of the cranial cervical junction. So bear with me as I, as I do read this, but I want you guys to, to get a sense of who we're talking to this morning. In 2011, Dr. Scali reported a novel anatomical finding, the myodural bridge of the atlanoaxial interspace. This anatomical soft tissue bridge connects the suboccipital muscles to the cervical dura mater. Its functional role is to anchor the spinal cord during passive and active cervical spine movements. In 2015, Dr. Scali led a study involving plastinated specimens revealing analogous soft tissue communications extending from the upper cervical vertebrae from the base of the skull. Uh, these structures coalesce to form a complex tissue network named the meningeal myovertebral ligament. Other offers has since isolated similar structures across multiple species in the animal kingdom. And in this latest manuscript, Dr. Scali proposed that the meningeal myovertebral complex provides a tension monitoring system to prevent dural infolding and aids in the control of the cerebrospinal fluid flow. And failure of this system may result in altered cerebrospinal fluid pressure, changes in sensory motor function, uh, cervicocephalic headaches, and dural-related pathology. So a lot, of, a lot of terminology there, but I think it's, it's all within the realm of the things that we're very interested in upper cervical chiropractic. So um, Dr. Scali, if you would just introduce yourself, the work you're doing at the university, and I would be curious to hear about your background in chiropractic and how you, you found yourself on this path. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, so basically, let, let's start off with uh, you know what uh, my roles in the university. It's kind of extended since uh, that last biography there. And uh, one of it is uh, I'm the anatomy lab director, but it's known as the Atlas Center. That's what it's uh, turning into. That stands for um, Advanced Training, Learning, and Augmented Simulation Center. So it's going to be an entire center uh, training surgeons, students, and the like for um, uh, for for medicine. Um, the I am also the USMLE. Director, uh, board prep director, I should say. So, director of USMLE board prep at the university, and I run three courses there as course director. I am the MSK Derm course director, the CM6900 course, which is the USMLE board prep course, and as well as the surgery 8411 course, which um, helps to train uh, students to become surgeons. And um, I guess my story started at Logan, Logan University. That's where I did my chiropractic training. And um, the First myodural bridge, which I can now call the inferior myodural bridge. There's a superior myodural bridge and an inferior myodural bridge. 
the inferior myodural bridge is the structure that I, I identified back in 2009. And it was actually uh, on my birthday of all day, October 1st, 2009. And um, I can walk into kind of how it was discovered. It was by accident. It kind of found me. Basically, the way it worked is uh, it was my birthday, got ditched, you know, just like somebody on their birthday may have may get ditched by their girlfriend. So where else would I go but to the lab? So I went to the anatomy lab. And I was working in the lab at that stage as senior prosector, and I was helping students out. And there was a prone cadaveric donor on one of the tables. And what is kind of uh, remarkable when I think back at this is that this donor was, there was a laminectomy that was performed, but for some reason, whoever dissected this did not, they left C1 and C2 intact. I have no idea why. Um, it was not part of the curriculum or any of our teaching, but C1 and C2 were still intact. And there was a little nub of tissue which was the rectus capitis posterior major that, that I know now. And when I pulled on this, um, this tissue, I noticed movement in the spinal cord mm. or the dura mater. So um, I took it upon myself to then do a hemilaminectomy. And I performed a hemilaminectomy of C2, uh, the spinous process, as well as the lamina. And I gently started trying to remove C2, but I noticed that it too was attached to the dura mater spinal cord. And that's when I busted out my camera and um, obviously asked permission and videotaped uh, the C2. That, and now we know that that's going to be the inferior uh, vertebral dural ligament. So the inferior vertebral dural ligament, I snipped off and then I checked out the muscle. Lo and behold, it was rectus capitis posterior major. And um, I reported to the lab director at that time. And they looked at me. First thing they said is, I want my name on the paper. So <laughs> that's how it started. Yeah, of course. Um, it's interesting because this, these findings, um, you know, I, I did not, I, I know that you opened up saying I, I discovered a modular bridge, but I got to give credit to, um, there's a French anatomist who never gets credit in all this. His name was, uh, Khan, Khan et al. 1992. They did these plastination studies and they did describe some of these structures that they saw in plastination. Um, and the problem is, is that this paper is lost in translation. And, and mm. in fact, at the time when I was 20, I guess I was 28, 29 years old, I, they, we did have a French clinician on board at Logan and I had her translate the paper. Uh, I was probably such a pain in the butt there, but I had her translate the entire paper word for word. And he, this, these group of authors were describing um, not in the, as much detail as we know now, but for the most part, we did. Uh, they were talking about some of these slips of tissue attaching to the dura. Three years later, Gary Hack, a dentist, uh, Dr. Hack, uh, then published in 1995 the superior myodural bridge. But he called. He's the one who coined the term myodural bridge, which is now considered a misnomer based on this 2022 paper that we just published. Um, by the way, if I go too much, you can stop me. Okay. No, continue on. No, this is great. Yeah, great. So uh, the way the story goes is that that was about three months before my graduation in 2009 from Logan University. So um, I realized that my my this finding was a bit bigger than me. And, and that's how my understanding was that I should not, um, you know, I could go back and become a clinician is my mindset. I was like, this is going to outlive me and it's going to help many more people than I can as an individual. Sure. So I did take the MCAT. And uh, I was I applied directly to one of the universities, uh, and this was in Grenada, because the the individual who worked in anatomy there was um, writes for Gray's Anatomy. So I said, okay, well, that's probably the next logical step. Right. So that was my driving. That was what drove me to go into medical school. And uh, so that's where I published the first paper. I published the first paper in Grenada, but prior to graduating, actually, the night of my graduation. And you'll see on my first paper in 2012, there's another doctor there, Eric Marsili. Uh, he's a chiropractor as well. He was my classmate at the time. We got out of our graduation gowns, went back into the lab. We flipped back 45 cadaveric necks. And um, while, while everybody else was partying, we, we, we were able to see that this was an actual universal finding in all the cadaveric specimens by performing this very specific dissection, which is uh, written about in, in that article, in that 2012 article. So the reason why, one of the questions I always get is how are people not seeing this or why did nobody see this up until this point? And the reason being is twofold. Number one is that um, it wasn't until we were able to, that freak accident, if you want to call it a freak accident, or that, that freak experience of where somebody left C1, C2 intact, and I was able to hemisect it. 
And that hemi section of C2 also requires, and I'm going to get a little technical here, but taking the back end of a scalpel blade, not the sharp end, but the back end, the handle portion, and sliding it within the atlantoaxial interspace. Mm. And that protects the mild dural structures. And then from there, I'm able to use a Dremel saw and saw a hemilaminectomy. Now, typically, we don't do hemilaminectomies in surgery. If they're going to do surgery, they're going to do a full laminectomy. And also, the, there's a big misconception about the atlantoaxial and atlantooccipital interspaces and how they're organized, also clarified in 2015 in my paper and 2022, which I'll get to in a minute. So that is number one, that conventional dissection measures usually terminates all of these bridging structures or ligamentous structures. And it makes it so, you know, the, most of these surgeons, first of all, the patients under anesthesia, they have to get in, they have to get out. They're not going to sit there and explore. Right. And for anatomists, they usually go through a textbook, identify what they want to do. And they have a step-by-step, like a building Ikea furniture situation <laughs> when they're trying to identify these structures back here. So that's one of the reasons. The second reason is, um, plastination. And mm. uh, we'll get to that in a second. So in um, one of the things I'm going to keep this, this, this kind of story short on how um, I got to the next level, but meaning the difference in medical schools, why I jumped into AUC school of medicine. But the reason, the main reason um, when I first published a paper was a gross anatomical finding and a lot, and there were formalin based bodies. So a lot of the scientific community came back and said, wait a second, there are, there's a PAL membrane that's located at C1, C2. So superior myodal bridge must not exist. Mm. And then there's also ligamentum flavum that occurs between C2, C1 and C2. So PAL membrane between occiput and C1 and ligamentum flavum between C1 and C2. So they were saying this cannot exist. And also these are formalin-based cadaveric specimens. So we don't think you found anything. So I said, all right, let me go get some histology. So I performed the dissection again. And um, at that time I was selling my artwork to fund all this. It's not like I have government funding or anything as a medical student. So right. I said, sell my artwork to in order to get the histology sections done. And that was done at St. Louis University uh, Pathology Department. And I did want them one better. I said, okay, well, you know, this structure, structure leads to function and um, it functions probably, you know, probably needs an innervation. So let me get immunofluorescence or immunohistochemical uh, staining to see if there's neurons embedded in this tissue. Mm. And lo and behold, that was the 2000, I think it was 2013. Don't quote me on that. One of those papers, the next paper was the histological analysis of the myodural bridge. And um, we show that it's not only innervated or there's nerve endings um, that are directed straight from the, the suboccipital muscles all the way to the dura mater, but also that it is a true connection histologically. And um, again, nobody wants to believe it. So I don't know why I have photos of it. I have histo, I have immunohistochemical staining. So it was an uphill battle continues. And the next stage was, um, we also did this with the obliquus capitis inferior. So obliquus capitis inferior and rectus capitis posterior major both form this inferior myodural bridge. And at the time I was in medical school and I partnered up with my, who's now a plastic surgeon, his name is uh, Dr. Matthew Pontel. And we split the work. It was too much for one medical student to, to do. So we split the work. No faculty wanted to be on it because they didn't believe in it. Huh. We split the work in half and uh, he took the obliquus capitis inferior. I did rectus capitis posterior major. And if you notice that there's gonna be Pontel, um, publishing that work, and I was publishing the rectus major. Um, there was a head and neck fascia specialist who's now deceased, and he was my mentor. His name is Lance Nash. We acknowledged him in the paper that we just published, uh, in, that paper's in memory of him. He was he did his PhD in the, in, the, in the fascia of the head and neck spaces. So he not only did, um, he worked at AUC School of Medicine, and I was like, man, I gotta get, I gotta get my feet in there because this guy knows what he's talking about. So I transferred medical schools and they asked me, do you want to transfer your credits? And I said, no, let me start from the beginning because he worked in anatomy. So I was like, I'll do medical school again. Who cares? Started all over from scratch, worked with Dr. Nash. Um, I don't think he was too sure about me at first. <laughs> I think he thought I was just like this cocky little guy or whatever. Um, been humbled since those days, but he, he, he approached me and we started working together. He actually presented me with his thesis and his thesis was mostly on this alar fascia region which I am continuing work there. And it's a, a discovery for a later conversation. Also, it, you might be interested in this because it, it, it does um, attach to the atlanto, uh, some of the ligaments around the atlas and axis. So deglutation or swallowing has a lot to do with uh, cervical spine as well. And this is a paper we're publishing this year on this. But his focus was mainly on that. And my focus is on the, uh, obviously the suboccipital region. 
And what the reason why I wanted him aboard or the reason why I started over from scratch is he used plastination. Now, plastination is a very new technique. And by very new, I mean like in the 70s by uh, Gunther von Hagens from Body Worlds um, developed this technique where we actually infuse you know, epoxy E12 resin polymer into the tissues. And in order to do this, what happens is we have to dehydrate the tissues first. Mm -hmm. So in other words, what I'll do is we'll take a body, we'll, we'll dehydrate it using acetone. And the acetone, um, what, what this does, it'll shrink the tissues and it'll shrink these fascial layers. So it makes it very clear to see the separation of different fascial layers, which is nice. And then from there, we infuse it with E12 uh, resin and this solidifies it or preserves it indefinitely. And Dr. Nash was a individual who perfected this art. And so he had uh, specimens that we were able to identify these structures. And um, that is when I started noticing that this was a lot more complex than what I intentionally thought it was, which fueled the fire. And um, I started writing and illustrating, took aboard a couple of, if you notice my papers, they're usually um, decorated with illustrations from these underdog artists, as I call them, people who are beautiful artists like Danny Quirk is one of them that I must mention, Christina Pecora is another yep. one. And they, what they do is they are, um, you know, starting in their careers. And I, I say to myself, I was in that, their shoes at one point. So I started having him illustrate these. And he has a Frank Netter-esque um, workmanship to him. So I started uh, writing all these uh, complex, uh, I started observing how these fascial membranes started attaching to the dura mater. And again, it's much more complex than I've ever thought it was going to be. And the way that it works is a little something like this. It's that the PAO membrane, uh, which is traditionally described as attaching from the occiput to C1, and it still does on its lateral margins, I believe mm -hmm. so, but on this median aspect of PAO membrane, it does not attach to C1. It dives straight into the vertebral canal, merges or coalesces with the posterior sleeve of the dura mater, and it ends at C3. So it is more long, it's longer than we anticipated it to be and ever described. And it's also attaching directly to dura. Now, if you know anything about the PAO membrane, you'll also realize even Frank Netter saw this when he illustrated it, that they, it's not yellow, like the ligamentum flava. All the ligamentum flava have, have uh, elastin tissue in it. PAO membrane does not, it's white in color. It's made out of collagen type, um, type one, right? It's, so it's a dense collagenous uh, membrane. And this is firmly anchored to the dura mater, which means that the occiput and the control of the occiput uh, will have an effect on the posterior sleeve of the dura mater. So this forms this anchor or big membrane. And what this allows for is for these bridging structures, which I'll describe in a second, to attach to the dura mater. You don't want these muscles or vertebrae to directly attach to dura mater because they'll have too much force on, or they'll have too much independent nature on them. Yeah. That's my idea anyway. That's what I think. Well, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I think I, I appreciate you saying that because one of the common sort of, uh, you know, subluxation hypothesis or the dentate ligament cord distortion hypothesis that John Grostick published in like the 80s is kind of mm -hmm. a lot of upper cervical chiropractors hang their hat on that mechanism and this affrontation aspect of it. And I think that, you know, that's what, what you're saying is I always thought that that would be a design flaw. Like, why would the cranial vertebral structures be designed in a way where those mobile skeletal structures would have that level of influence on the cord? Right. And so I think the bridging concept that you're talking about and the summation of forces around and through that area to prevent the dural infolding is a much more interesting concept rather mm -hmm. than, you know, the atlas rotates, twists the spinal cord, you know, irritates <laughs> the spinal thalamic tract and we have a short leg and that kind of a thing. So, yeah, proceed with that, because I really want to highlight that for sure. folks, because that's something we all know about. Uh, and, and this understanding of uh, some of the, the basic anatomical structures adds a layer of complexity to that. And I don't, I'm the kind of guy that likes to test our, you know, test our assumptions, right. And not, there are no sacred cows in chiropractic for me. So this is one of those things that I think is, is worth exploring. Absolutely. And, and, and to, to kind of piggyback on that, you know, these are not the only anchors where, where the dural sleeve or where the nerve root sleeves leave into the intervertebral foramen. These are also well-known and it's, it's been recently published that these are also anchored to you know, the pedicles as well as the vertebral body and um, the uh, zygopophyseal joints, which forms the IVF. So the, the dura is very well anchored 
um, down so that it doesn't twist and contort, but especially up in this region because of the uh, amount of flexion extension in the cervical spine, as well as the rotation of C1, C2. Right. Um, yeah. So what we do we need to have is we need to have control of the dura in this region. So that, that PAO membrane contributes significantly to the thickness. I'm using the term significantly, even though it's not been used, we haven't status this, we haven't been able to uh, identify the um, morphometrics of these, of the thickness of this area because of the plastination shrinks yeah, the tissue. Yeah. But it's okay. It's still going to significantly increase the thickness of this posterior sleeve. And that also prevents the torsion or the enfolding of the dura mater. Now the rectus capitis posterior minor, which again, first identified by Kahn et al. in 1992, labeled as the myodural bridge in 1995 um, and verified throughout then, this is the main mild dual bridge that most individuals are talking about up until my 2012 study. So if you ever look at these neurosurgical release techniques that they use on this, this structure, uh, that's the one that they're cutting. This tissue uh, or this fascia, which is made of collagen type one, once again, it's going to be uh, coating the anterior surface of the rectus capitis posterior minor muscle, which is a slight extension of the neck, uh, head and neck joint. But this tissue is going to dive and the way I put it is that it slides, um, it kind of sneaks its way between the posterior arch of the atlas and the PAO membrane. And it gives it this illusion. If you look at figure three in, in my recent study, we, we uh, illustrate this illusion. And the reason why we had to do that is because everybody keeps saying the PAO membrane covers this area, but it shows how it accesses the vertebral um, yep. space, right? So it's pretty uh, remarkable about how that goes in. But now the other important thing is um, how this, slip of tissue stays anchored. It's not just about the PAO membrane, but the superior vertebral dural ligament from C1. So there's a ligament made out of periosteum, which has nociceptive fibers, mind you, extends from the atlas to the, to the PAO membrane, which is basically attached to the dura. And this anchors, they co it coalesces with the superior myodural bridge. So we have two slips of tissue. One's made out of fascia, one's made out of periosteum, they fuse together, coalesce, and they form a solid ligament. And this ligament is known as the meningomyovertebral ligament. Meningo, because of the meninges, myo, because of the muscle, vertebral, because of the bone, ligament. And so that's why I called it that or named it that way, because I'm trying to make it easy for students to understand, because I am an educator at heart. So I didn't want to name it, you know, the scally ligament and have another dead guy in 100 <laughs> years that everybody has to remember this. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, because <laughs> going through those anatomy courses, you know, just recalling all that terminology, it's like when it describes the, the structure, that's always a... Yes. a really nice uh, nod to the student so there's a more clever way to go about it and i'll finish up when I, i'll tell you what that is in a second because if you look at the name of the whole region you'll you'll notice something funny about it um meaning the first letter of each word what it spells out so and we'll get there so uh yeah so these these structures attach to the pao membrane and now we have an analogous situation at c1 c2 so that that superior Myodural mm -hmm. bridge, superior vertebral dural ligament, and the superior meningeal myovertebral ligament. These are all occurring around the occiput C1 region and attaching to the PAO membrane. Beautiful. The next stage here is we have the atlantoaxial interspace. And this is uh, the myodural bridge there is very different. It com it's comprised of the obliquus capitis inferior fascia, rectus capitis posterior major fascia. And these fascial layers, fascial layers, they coalesce together. Now, the way that they access into this region is also very interesting. Up until this point of 2015, we also used to always think that the ligamentum flavum there were two thick bands that are covering the atlantoaxial interspace. And what I show in the study is that, no, that's not the case. They're actually much significantly thinner. And this allows for these bridging structures to have this haphazard sort of orientation to uh, traverse into the atlantoaxial interspace and into the vertebral canal. Now, since it comes into with this haphazard orientation, because they have to divide and split, they have to coalesce back into a, a formal bridge. Okay. And remember, we're taking ro uh, ipsilateral rotation as well as extension into account here. So it's important to, to get these for C1, C2, uh, that, that information to the PAO membrane. So again, once again, these bundles of fibers will then fuse now with C2, which has a wider lamina and a wider vertebral dural uh, ligament, okay? And it fuses with this, forming the inferior meningeal myovertebral ligament. 
And finally, that will attach to the PAO membrane. And just to, to since we're giving a little lesson here, I, the way that I described this in 2022, and this, the terminology is all over the place when other authors write about this, and I want to be clear about this, and actually, this is the first time I'm actually discussing it on a podcast or, or, or out loud, is that bridging structures, the way that I'm defining them, to keep it clear, is that bridging structures are coming from the extra uh, vertebral um, canal space, so main epidural spaces outside of the vertebral column, so from muscles, okay, and they are entering into the vertebral column. That's a bridge because we're bridging the outside to the inside, and a ligament is going to be defined as something that began within the vertebral column itself. So inside of that, um, inside of that epidural space, such as these ligaments, like vertebral dural ligaments, those are defined as ligaments. So it's try I'm trying to organize the nomenclature for the for the the crew. And there is one other structure. And I unfortunately I know Dr. Nash is deceased, right? And he didn't do, agree with me with this structure. So I left it out of my 2015 paper. But if you notice, it's in my 2022 paper, and that's the nuchal ligament. So the nuchal ligament is this band of ligamentous tissue. And it, I know they say it's not an innervation, but I seen the damn innervation. I know it's there. Um, I'll publish that at a later time. There's just too much in this area that we don't know. This ligamentous tissue is a very dense membrane and the trapezius attaches to it. The rhomboids mm. attach to it. We have a lot of these upper extremity muscles that will attach this for the shoulder girdle. And these attach to the nuchal ligament and the nuchal ligament has its own bridge. And it's called the nuchal bridge. For the first time in the 2022 paper, I call it the nuchal bridge. Everybody else will call it the to be named ligament or the nuchal uh, ligament attaches to dura mater, but this throws a kink in the whole nomenclature idea. And so I included it in this paper. If Dr. Nash was alive, uh, or he's rolling in his grave right now, because he, in his plastinations, he saw that the nuchal ligament was not attaching. What he was actually seeing, because I've seen the slices that he defended once in his office, he was showing it to me. There's a time where the nuchal ligament will split open like a diamond shape. And this diamond shape has an opening and it, you'll see that it does not attach to dura in that region. I'm trying to name it Nash, Nash's space. Unfortunately, I am naming something after a dead gentleman. <laughs> I'm kind of a hypocrite over here. But um, yeah, so that's what he was seeing. But I've always seen the nuchal bridge uh, in my later studies, but I just didn't want to step on the toes of my mentor at the time. But, um, but in the 2022 paper, I did include it. And you'll see that this, this bridge um, in fact, when I was looking at these studies, maybe like yesterday I was in a lab and I was looking at some of these plastinations, what I think is happening is that the nuchal ligament encases the, the inferior myodural bridge. So instead hmm. of having these haphazard fibers, it's congealed within a band of tissue so that it provides some direction uh, to attach to the PAO membrane. Like and a so, conduit. Yeah, yeah, like a conduit, exactly. And in the core of this conduit is the rectus capitis posterior minor and major um, muscles and uh, their fascia, their fascial membranes. So all of these will then, uh, conf they, they will all merge and attach to the, the PAO membrane and miraculously PAO membrane ends at C3. And that's where all these muscular, uh, these tissues, bridges and ligaments and so on and so forth all end. Um, that's fascinating. And that point about the, um, uh, the sort of soft tissue barrier, you know, between the occiput and the at posterior arch, the atlas, and that that being kind of the limiting factor of that extension to the dura, it's like, um, it, one of the things I thought was interesting about reading this is I think most medical students, chiropractic students, you're going through school, you've got your netter, you've got your, you know, dissection manual, and it's kind of, you just assume that these are all well-established and well-defined structures, and you just referenced the, the idea that, well, we, you know, there's a lot to learn yet you know, in yep. these, uh, in this region of the spine. So, um, it's, it takes someone who's going to push through that, you know, push through that, um, restriction to, or to new information. I mean, that just that, uh, let me, let me read a quote here. This is one of my highlights from your paper there. And I want to, I want to kind of revisit the plastination techniques. Cause that's kind of what all this hinges on is your ability to, to isolate these tissues in a way that the formalin cadavers you wouldn't be able to. Plastination technique reveals that no direct communication exists between the medium PAOM and the posterior arch of C1. This morphology allows for access of the superior MDB myodor bridge into the vertebral canal. And that's that difference you're talking about the median aspect versus the lateral aspect. Um, 
And, and so the plastination thing, I know you, you breeze through it real quick towards the beginning of that explanation. It was something that I was not familiar with. So reading mm-hmm. the description of that process in the paper, I'd encourage folks to do that because it's a pretty, it's a you know, pretty involved technique to get to the point where, you know, this dissection becomes possible. So again, acetone, cold acetone, right? For a period of time, yes. shrinks right. the structures, separates out these layers of tissue, mm-hmm. like you said, are, that are coalesced in situ. So you're, you're basically separating these out, almost kind of like the layers of a, you know, one of those uh, Pillsbury dough yeah exactly and now the polymer the e12 polymer you're talking about when that's infused that's going to maintain the negative space between these uh, between these uh, layers Mm -hmm. so that you can then go do your histochemical analysis and your dissection techniques and and observe the preserved spaces is that correct well sort of it's once once you plastinate these specimens now the acetone is an organic solvent right it's ch2o so what happens is that the acetone um you know what we do is we we will place this um, this slice of tissue, whatever you want to dissect, and it's already bathed in its acetone, dehydrated in a, to a vacuum chamber. And what it does is that the vacuum chamber, we fill up the vacuum chamber with um, the E12 plastic polymer. Now, there's P45 polymers. There's all sorts of polymers. It doesn't matter what polymer you use. It's just plastic. And I have to get yeah. that point across because there's a group of authors saying, oh, we discovered it too, but they're using only a different plastic and the plastic doesn't matter. Mm. Um, so I'm a little bit Anyway, I'll get back on topic. Otherwise, I'll go down a wormhole and I don't want to go down. <laughs> so this, this plastic uh, epoxy resin, if you will, it's like a clear pile. What happens is as the acetone gets sucked out, since it's an organic solvent, which replaces water, as it gets sucked out, just like, a, you know, um, some people use that nail polish remover. That's what it is. It just kind of evaporates. And what ends up happening is that something by laws of physics, something has to replace uh, inside of those cells, the fluid. And what replaces it is the E12 uh, resin or gotcha. any other sort. So it fills up in the space. Now, once that happens, the one part that I want to correct with what you stated is that once that occurs, um, you know, the tissue becomes useless from a, a microscopic analysis, meaning okay. from a histological or immunohistochemical staining, because the proteins are already uh, destroyed. Mm, it just maintains okay. the gross anatomical structure. So if I want to conduct a histological study, which is what we're doing now, where we're pulling out mitochondria and fresh tissue, we're trying to see the effects uh, which we'll get into the clinical application in just a second. So all we did was cover the anatomy here. But, uh, you know, if I want to see it down to a cellular level, how these tissues change with aging, okay, then what I need to do is I need fresh tissue, you know, deceased individual within like a certain period of time. I can't plastinate it and observe. And the other thing about this paper that's new, and I tried to publish it at first, but I think the peer reviewers, um, they didn't want me to publish too much at one time, I guess. But it was these this new dissection technique that I I. Uh, provided in this paper and that's post plastination dissection okay so what happens under microscopy i know i just got done saying i can't look at this histologically but under microscopy stereo microscope i would take a dissected head that's been plastinated slide it under the microscope and i would see this gray white translucent it's congealed epoxy resin situated between spaces and under normal dissection you cannot separate these tissue but under post-plastination dissection, it is possible with micro-dissection instruments. And so this was a second portion of the study. I think it's, it might be figure two, where there's a hemisected head. Yeah. And you'll see that what I did was that was actually um, uh, the first thing I did when I got my job. And as you know, I'm obsessed with this. So the first thing, the very first thing I did is I took their hemisected head and I performed that dissection. That was uh, back in 2018 or 19 or something like that. And to show that the PAO membrane was um, its own separate unit, and it's it's much more, it's nothing to shrug your shoulders about. It's something that is a, a it has a plays an essential role in this entire meningomyovertebral complex. Um, so that that's that's how uh, that works. Yeah, and like I, I hope that that made uh, sense with the way the plastination technique. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, the correction because I think when folks are looking at these figures understanding that process is going to help you to identify the structures and they're, they're well done. They're well, I mean, uh, the folks that did the, um, illustrations for you, I appreciate you shouting them out. They're beautiful illustrations, very well done, but then also the photography that's provided does help kind of explain, um, you know, fill in the gaps on that. So for folks that are listening, get the paper, read the paper, study the illustrations, that's going to fill in the gaps. We're covering a lot of ground fast here. Um, but that's definitely, going to fill in the gaps for you visual learners and the folks that need to see i uh, need to see this in uh, in front of you so okay great. One, of, one of the points also is that i made the paper open source 
Yeah. So all these other research papers, I usually publish into like higher end, like spine, the spine journal. And I realized that the scientific community was the only one who had like the elite scientific community was the only one who had access. Yeah. So when I published this manuscript with the illustrations and all, I wanted to make sure that this is not just for the uh, scientific community, but also for um, the general public as well. So um, that's one of the reasons why I made it open source, because I realized that not everybody was able to have access to the 2015 paper. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that's the reason we're having this conversation, right? I saw in, in the, the beautiful thing about the internet in, in today's age is it, it opens doors of communication and sharing of information. And you and I got connected on Instagram, even maybe a couple of years ago, ex, ex, uh, exchanged a few messages. And then when I saw this publication, I followed up with you again and said, let's talk. And so here we are, this is within a several weeks of this thing hitting the open access uh, uh, status. It's here we are having the conversation and discussing you know, some of the details and future work. Uh, let's, let's get into some of the clinical implications, maybe the, sure. the key sort of takeaways for the clinicians that are going, that's great. You know, this is jogging my memory of all these structures and I'm going to go look at the paper. But, you know, when it comes to the, uh, the practicing clinician, what do you think are the key takeaways? And, and we'll what? go through a couple different, cause you're training surgeons. So we'll talk about maybe on the surgical side of things, which is less relevant to our listeners, but then also on the uh, manual therapy side of things. Absolutely. I think one of the things that will um, benefit the community that mostly listens to your podcast um, is going to be dural tension. Um, so a lot of this stuff, there's a couple of things. That's the main one. This area of the dura mater that all these structures are attaching to is um, highly innervated, as I showed in, in one of my papers. And it is, is innervated and it's uh, by V1 trigeminal nerve, which is the frontal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, temporal branch of, of, of V1. So this is going to, or ophthalmic branch, sorry. This is going to um, send a referred pain. So a lot of these patients who have these, these frontal headaches, tension headaches, uh, one of the sources could be from these muscles. And in fact, um, there's lots of studies of medical or allopathic physicians injecting Botox blindly into this area without using ultrasound guidance, which is something I'm working on now where we can inject, um, we use ultrasound to to identify these specific muscles and we can inject the, inject Botox into those areas. And you might be saying, well, that might def, uh, cause issues, but um, we'll talk about that later. But in the most part, yeah, these upper cervical adjustments, I think that the reason why they're so successful is because what you're doing is you're releasing some of the um, tension on these muscles, right? Uh, I, the biomechanics of that is beyond my understanding of how an upper cervical adjustment would affect that. But at the same time, it, it can release uh, the, the tension on the dura mater in this vicinity, especially at the C1 and C2 level. So these upper cervical adjustments, I, I believe that that's the reason why they are so successful with treating headaches, uh, as well as in the allopathic model, if they're going to be using some of these um, more harsh drugs for, for certain cases. And that's supported by the study in 2005, where they did a mild dural release. Uh, one of the problems with this using all these harsh drugs to, to, or surgery to, um, whether releasing or paralyzing for lack, lack of a better term, using right. Botox in this area is, um, the function of these. It's not just for dural patency at the cerebral spinal cistern. Um, that's one of the reasons, right? Cause the function of this is, as we stated, we don't want to kick the dura as we rotate our head and neck, but also for cerebral spinal fluid, um, um, clearance. So whether it's pumping of the cerebral spinal fluid, because this is arguments that I'm having in the literature and mm-hmm. the weird venue, is it pumping the CSF? Is it draining the CSF? It doesn't matter. What it's doing, it's clearing the CSF. And this becomes extremely important when you start to talk about other severe disease states, such as beta amyloid precursors accumulating in the CSF, such as Alzheimer's. Right. If we have decreased clearance in this area of CSF, then we can have accumulation of beta amyloid proteins and what that can occur is uh, we will have a lack of drainage and accumulation. Now, for those of you that might be skeptical about this, I, I must remind you there's a paper in 1967. It's also in 1964. I, I, the author's name slips my mind right now, but they found an ampulocal apparatus in this vicinity. What the hell does that mean? Well, that's basically a barrel pressure. Now we have ampulocal apparatus or baroreceptors or receptors to measure pressure in certain regions of the body. Number one, in the carotid bifurcation at the level of C3, because that's where the, these carotid arteries split 
One of them goes to the penthouse. And that's the important part, right? We want to measure the pressure going to the penthouse. That makes sense. We want to measure the pressure going to the rest of the body. So there's one at the aortic arch. And what everybody fails to recognize is that there's one by the vertebral artery because the vertebral artery and the, the internal carotid artery both form the circle of Willis which feeds the brain. So wouldn't it make sense to have some sort of pressure receptor at the vertebral artery in order to monitor the pressure of the, uh, the blood flow going up? But maybe this ampulloglomerular apparatus is also measuring CSF flow in the same hmm. area. And so there's a link between the cardiovascular system as well as the CSF by some of these nerves in the, in the medulla, which I'm working on now. Uh, one of these nerves we keep shrugging our shoulders about, pun intended. And I think you know which one I'm talking about. I think yep. this is the one that's governing this region. So I think, uh, and there's a little branch between that nerve and cranial nerve 10, which monitors heart uh, um, as well as cranial nerve nine. And guess what cranial nerve nine and 10 are innervating? Carotid bifurcation. So there's a link. Neurons that fire together, wire together, as we know from Norman Deutsch's book yep. uh, with neuroplasticity. And so there is this functional uh, component to this. And going back to clinical application, if you have certain aspects that occur, like failure of these bridges is a big, um, in, in other words, let's, let's look at some of these patients, like the ones that have collagen deposition disorders, such yeah. as like Erlos Danlos is one of these patients. We're writing a paper now. It's actually in peer review. It's uh, probably going to be returned. It's it'd probably be out in the next week or so, but patients who have whiplash, yep. which would, would, would actually um, appeal to your, your, your listeners. Patients who have whiplash is this idiopathic fluid accumulation at C1, C2. And nobody can explain it. You know, they say, yeah, dural tearing, sure, that's cool. But how is the dural tearing at this region? And the root way, the reason why is because of these meningeal myovertebral structures. So this paper is uh, uh, hopefully it'll be, I don't want to mention the journal yet, just because it does get published in that journal, but it's uh it's basically a hypothesis on how these patients, so that's one um uh, how these patients accumulate fluid in this region. Now that word idiopathic, as you know, means we don't know what causes it. So idiopathic fluid accumulation in CSF, uh, in, in these whiplash accidents are, are one, of the, one of the major clinical significance um, um, or clinical significant findings that we can um, now explain. And another one is idiopathic uh, um, hydrocephalus. So idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus can also be due to the failure of these structures as well. Now, the details behind that is, you know, uh, not well understood, but um, failure of these structures need to be looked at. The other thing is going to be, um, as, you, as you age, you know, muscle atrophy. What does that do? It can, it can also cause this tension on the dural area, causing these headaches, but also decreasing CSF fluid. And one of the things I want to tap into here is the astronauts that go into space. They're not doing physical therapy of the head and neck muscles before right. they go in. So what do they return with? Headaches. Mm. Right. And so it's these debilitating headaches. So maybe, I don't know somebody should call up Musk and say, you know, let's do uh, some head and neck exercises before we go up there. Let's do some head and neck exercises while we're up there, PT training. And then when they come back this way, they don't suffer from these debilitating headaches due to the dural tension in this area. When so you reference those, the, the Chiari malformations and, and even the cerebellar tonsillectopia, ectopia, sure. uh, that's also, you know, going to shed some light on some of those mechanisms. Absolutely. No, very Absolutely. interesting. And Dr. Flanagan's work, and I don't know if that was 2015 or 16, when his craniospinal hydrodynamics paper came out, but that was one of the things that moved me in the direction of upper cervical chiropractic mm -hmm. was the understanding of the implications of these structures on long-term health trajectory. That's like one thing to take care of musculoskeletal aches and pains, uh, and there's clinical value and benefit in that for the patient. But when you're talking about these types of mechanisms, the beta amyloid uh, accumulation, the neurodegenerative consequences of an improper clearance of CSF, to use your word, is huge. And I think we're only at kind of the tip of the iceberg in understanding you know, how we're going to influence those systems from a non-invasive conservative perspective. Absolutely. I, I think one of the things here is uh, the next stage in this, all this stuff is, you know, unfortunately in the medical world, you can identify all this stuff in, um, um, anatomically, and that's beautiful. But unless you bring it into the, uh, the field of radiology, that's, and, mm. and I'm finding this problem, especially with the ALR fascia, which is another membrane I'm focusing on, because that can lead to mediastinitis and this, uh, the, the finding that I found there. But I'm realizing that if we don't see it radiologically, then it's, it's almost like a, as if it doesn't exist in, mm. in, within the field of medicine. I feel like chiropractors definitely have this um, upper hand here where they understand this upper cervical region really well. Um, they don't really, they use radiology, but they don't need to depend on it to understand the biomechanics in this area. And so they, they might, they might pioneer with some of the treatment options in this area over the allopathic model. Um, 
but you know that's that's um, the dueling doctorates that I own. I, it's try it's hard for me to shift back and forth between the two and see which one to use. But uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, there's and also there's um, you know it, since the nuchal bridge is now involved, we got to think about uh, the patient population that does have a thickened nuchal ligament, and that's yeah. the Down syndrome population, and they hmm. have early onset of Alzheimer's due to the trisomic twenty one. So um, if you have a thickened nuchal bridge, maybe that's affecting uh, or causing in, um, an impotence of the inferior myodual bridge. <laughs> so this, it could be a double hit hypothesis here. Three, yeah. three chromosomes leading to trisomy 21, leading to increased beta amyloid protein in the brain, plus the decrease in, flu, in clearance. I mean, we've got ourselves something here that needs to be looked at because Down syndrome patients typically have Alzheimer's by the age of 40. Double crush type of thing. Interesting. Sure. Double crush type of thing. Yeah, that's the yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, great. I, I mean, I know that we've kind of hinted at it, but in your mind, what are the next steps? I mean, where where are you going from here uh, from a uh, research perspective to kind of build on and, and uh, create a more complete understanding of these findings? Yeah, the next step is, uh, is the next bridge is clinical, pun intended, right? So what we're going to do is there, we're teaming up with, uh, you know, uh, in my field, neurosurgeons, I'd be happy to team up with any sort of upper cervical practitioners as well who's, who are interested in the next phase. But um, it's mostly going to be, um, you know, we're teaming up with people who specialize in this area. Uh, personally, uh, since I work close with surgeons, that's who I'm going to be um, discussing with. And also PM&R uh, physicians um, who I feel are more like on the cusp of what we do as, uh, as chiropractors. They, they are a little bit more about the biomechanics. And one of the things I don't like seeing is this shotgun approach to using this botulism toxin yeah. uh, on some of these areas. I think that if they do utilize it with ultrasound needle guidance after conservative therapy doesn't work, um, they can they can maybe take that next stage up and use this um, ultrasound guided to find out which exact muscle is the is the culprit of the problem and um, target that initial muscle. And I and I know we just got done saying, oh, all these muscles are handling CSF clearance, but remember that we don't have to target every single one of them. Uh, yeah. Right. So we can target yep. one or two of them that are causing issues. So well, it's interesting. Stage, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, it's interesting you say that because I had a conversation with a patient yesterday who's got a, you know, a few different migraine disorders kind of overlapping and she had uh, Botox injections and they did the shotgun blast approach and it really threw her into a physiological tailspin, including two weeks of intense anxiety to the point where she couldn't speak, she couldn't get out of the house, missed yeah. 10 days of work, the whole type of thing. And so you know, we had the conversation it is a neurotoxin, right? That's kind of the, the mechanism that of action mm -hmm. with that kind of a stuff, uh, kind of a thing. And if you use any tool, you know, with a shotgun blast approach, whether it's adjustments or injections or whatever, um, it, it's less, well, I don't know if I should say it's less effective, but there's a proper way to do it. And so we need to kind of increase our efficacy with this stuff by, you know, having a more specific uh, approach. You're actually right by saying it's less effective because uh, we're conducting a meta-analysis now on uh, botulinum toxin um, being used. And as you know, botulinum toxin, uh, um, it cleaves SNAP25, which is a snare protein. But what this does is it prevents the vesicles from leaving. And what they're, what we're finding is that there are mixed results. So we, we, we're not targeting the appropriate muscles. We're just going in blindly. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, so there's no, we're seeing that there's no positive effect um, or there's no change when we, when we perform this meta-analysis. And again, that, that'll probably be published in the next year or so. Okay. So yeah, you're not incorrect by saying it's not. I think with upper cervical docs like yourself, and, and if, you're, if you're targeting these specific muscles, um, I think that you'd be much more successful in treating some of these suboccipital headaches um, and I know that for sure, that's why I got into chiropractic. I had a cervical adjustment. I'm like, damn, that headache went away immediately. And that's what got me into the whole DC situation. And Interesting. Cervical. Yeah, for sure. That and the wrist adjustment that I had, that was, I had some wrist pain, but anyway, that's a, a digress from that. We're done with my biography. <laughs> the, but that's um, a, yeah. No, it's an interesting point though. Cause a lot of our, you know, a lot of our colleagues got into it for a similar thing. Personal experience was the thing that connected the dots between structure and function, which is what you're looking at. Right. So that kind of puts you on a path and then we all have these you know, sort of inflection points in our path that take us in various directions. And for you, you know, for me, ended up in the clinical space, treating patients for you ended up in the academic space doing research. And uh, it's, it's, you know, one is not better than the other. I'm, I'm grateful that you're there doing that work and willing to have the conversations and, and bridge the gap between the two worlds, like you said, Absolutely. because I think that's kind of the, the, the way forward. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, through the research and education, especially, you know, I do, I definitely talk about chiropractic in, in the medical school and the students do appreciate it. I think that it has to start early. The old saying, like, you know, if you're, if you hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of situation. Well, the students that I teach and train, I always try to open up their mind to that. There's, um, this is a team effort and it's, it, everything's used at a different time. You know, yeah. if it's acute care, then maybe they need medical treatment. If it's something that can, or if you try and find biomechanical stability, maybe you can go see a chiropractor, but um, the, the um, yeah, that's uh, it's, it's, I just think that the it's to teach or to do research. I'm, I'm still helping patients, but it's more of a butterfly approach is how I see it. Yeah. And, and I'm delivering it to, to the, the scientific community, such as gentlemen as, as yourself, so that you can pass on this information and actually help patients one by one. It's kind of sad. I'll never meet my patients, but at the same time, it's, I know it's happening and um, I can kind of leave a mark in my own way through my chiropractic training. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate that perspective. And, you know, from the, those of us in the field, we do see that day to day. So for, for you in the lab, you know, when you're going through these delicate procedures and techniques and you're going to war on the academic side of things over nomenclature and, you know, who did it first type <laughs> of thing, all of that oh. stuff that happens here, here sort of at the ground level with patients, you know, we do see and appreciate uh, the effects of your work and, and folks are going to be thinking about this and studying this and, and we're going to be having real conversations about how we take this work and apply it to what we do with patients. So uh, just so that you know, it does it does work its way down uh, to the patient on the table. And for these folks that we deal with that are neurologically involved and they've, they've had surgery, they've had physical therapy, they've been to conventional chiropractors, they've had Botox, they've been on, you know, all the uh, harsh drugs like you put, and they're still without help. This helps us have conversations and build bridges for, you know, to, to continue with the pun there, uh, to, to put these folks in a position to not just have help, but also to have hope, you know, that there is someone who understands what's going on with them and can provide a path forward. So Absolutely. any other words of encouragement or, or last tips or, or things you'd like to leave the audience with as we, uh, as we start to wrap up? Yeah, I guess I'll say one thing. It's um, I always tell the students this on the first day of class. Every time I always say that, you know, if you fail to understand what you are inside, then you have little hope of understanding anything beyond yourself. So it's, I encourage, even if you are a practicing uh, physician or if you're a student, you know, learn as much as you can about this. And um, yeah, it's, it was hell trying to get this for the last 13 years into print the way it is now, but uh, I, I don't regret any of it. I mean, I think that um, I met a lot of cool people along the way, like artists and so, so on and so forth. And uh, we got something now. Uh, and so far we've been wrong about everything. That's the other thing I always tell the students. So, yeah. you know, stay humble, stay modest, you know, maybe in 10 years, we'll be having another conversation, you and I, and it's going to be on something completely different. I'll tell you, I was wrong about everything, you know? Well, that's, that's the thing about doing this podcast. It's like, I'm putting my neck out there going, I, I'm no problem <laughs> with being wrong, right? So whatever we talk about now, we will definitely revisit the conversation and the work continues, uh, the work that you're doing. And so we'll, uh, we'll continue to follow your work and maybe provide sure. an update periodically. And if I make my way out to California, I'd love to have you show me around sure. the lab. Absolutely. And uh, can I, can I dish out my uh, Instagram just in case your followers want to see some of this stuff? At Dr. Eviscerator. Uh, yeah, at the, Dr. Cool Eviscerator. the coolest handle on Instagram, but, <laughs> but also your artwork is um, I, I think that's how I found you in the first place. You may have a hashtag upper cervical or something like that with some really interesting illustrations, really well done. So go check his work out and, um, you know, got a little bit of all of that on there. So absolutely, thank you so much. Beautiful. Dr. Scally, appreciate the uh, generosity absolutely. of your time. And uh, for folks that want to get in touch with you, we'll, we'll kind of leave it on the Instagram side of things. They can check out your work and, uh, and see what you're up to there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.